Father, today as we come back to this chapter of faith, chapter 11 of Hebrews, and we look at the father of faith, Abraham, Lord, and, and how you promised great things for him, and, and he received so many of those promises while he was on this earth, Lord, but yet he looked for a greater promise, the promise of, of living forever with you, Lord, in your holy city, and and Lord, he learned a lesson that we all need to learn to, to not hold so tightly uh, to the things of this earth, Lord, to, to get a fresh vision of who you are and where you are and where we're going to be. And, and Lord, to just buy that vision to, to march on as pilgrims on this earth, doing your will and, until you call us home. And so, Lord, we, we, there's just a really good lesson here today. So I ask that you teach us that by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you will, turn your Bibles and we'll be in the book of Hebrews. Actually, don't go directly to Hebrews. Go to Romans chapter 4. If you know where Romans is, it's a few books before you get to Hebrews. Romans chapter 4. And we'll start there in a few minutes today. Uh, C.S. Lewis, if you've ever read any of C.S. Lewis' books, he, he was a master of making these very profound statements. And, and one of the statements that he made was this. He says, I find in myself a desire which, is, which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Did you catch that? Let me, let me read it again. He said, I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. What was that other world he was talking about? He was talking about heaven, wasn't he? I mean, no doubt C.S. Lewis understood uh, the, the difficulty that we all face finding contentment in this world because, because once we're saved, our desires change, uh, our dreams change, our hopes change, and we're hungry and thirsty for things above instead of things below. So here was the author of Hebrews, and he was writing to, the, to these Jewish Christians in the book of Hebrews, but they weren't really looking for another world. They were struggling with this, this idea of faith. They, they were focused on the present world. And, and you can understand why, because they had a very visible religion. They had a, they had a religion with, that was based upon outward sights and sounds. And, and, uh, and, and, and so they lived by sight instead of by faith. And that's the people he's writing to in the book of Hebrews. I mean, they prayed in the temple. And what was the temple to them? It was the very living, the dwe very dwelling place of God. And so when they saw the temple, they said, well, God's in that temple. So they lived by sight. Uh, they had priests, and, they, and these priests were decked out in all this beautiful priestly garb, and they could watch the priests and listen to the priests and talk to the priests, and the priests could talk to them, and the priests represented God, and so, so they lived by sight and, 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 and uh, in that respect. They also, uh, uh, when they sacrificed animals, they could see the priests drain the blood, so they didn't have to look at the cross to look for the, and, and by faith believe in the blood, they could actually see the blood coming out of these animals in this sacrifice. And, and they blew trumpets that they could hear they, with their ears. They lit candles that they could see with their eyes. And they burned incense that they could smell with their noses. And, and so they had a religion of sight. Even their, their, 
their expression of that religion was based upon the outward works of the law. It wasn't based upon an inward change. It was based upon how they lived their life on this earth. And so, so he's writing to these, these uh, Hebrews, and he's trying to teach them that we're not to live by sight. I mean, we have a, there's a religion in this state or in, in, this, in this culture that, that is based a lot upon sight. And it's really, when somebody converts from that religion to, to say, Calvary Chapel, or, or really to Christianity, and then they come to Calvary Chapel, they struggle with that sometimes because they're used to the icons. They're used to the artwork. They're used to seeing the priests go through all of these rituals. And so it's really hard to live by faith. And so that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to do in chapter 11. He's trying to teach them to live by faith. And what he's doing here in chapter 11, he's showing them that their greatest heroes, the, the, the heroes, the, the men and women of the Old Testament, they didn't live by, uh, by sight. They lived by faith. And so in today's text in Hebrews, he's going to look at one of their greatest heroes. To the Jew, there were two heroes. There was Moses and there was Abraham, and they debated over who was the greatest. But to a lot of them, Abraham was the greatest because he was their biological father. They saw him as, as the, the father of their nation, and, and, and that was rightly so because he was the father of their nation. And, 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 but they saw him as being made righteous by his good works. And so uh, the author of Hebrews is going to try to show them that that's, he wasn't made righteous by his good works. He was made righteous by his faith. Here's, here's the way they saw it. After the flood, men and women went back to their old ways. It didn't take long. And uh, they, were, they, were, they were doing wicked things, and they were back in idolatry. And so to the Jew, God saw this, and so he looked around, and he found this remarkably righteous man named Abraham. And he saw this righteous man, and he said, from this remarkably righteous man, I can make a remarkably righteous people called the Jews. And that's the way they saw it. And they actually thought that because they were the children of Abraham, they were especially righteous. That, that God, they were the favorite in God's eyes, and as far as God, and, and in a way they were. But uh, they were the favorite not because of grace and because of faith, but because of their good works. You remember in chapter 8 of John when Jesus was having one of his hottest disputes with the Jews, and, and Jesus begged them, he said, to hear the truth so that the truth can set you free. He, what was he talking about, setting them free from what? Setting them free from sin. Hear, you, you shall hear the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And you remember what they said? They said, hey, we've never been in bondage to anybody. We're Abraham's descendants. We're Abraham's children. And in their minds, they thought Jesus was talking about outward moral works, and they thought, hey, good works, and they thought that they did a lot of good works. And so they took that as an insult. In, in a way, I think it was an insult. And so they were deeply offended, and, and uh, 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 so they said, hey, we're the children of Abraham, this remarkably righteous man named Abraham. And so they didn't understand that the works that Jesus was talking about, the works that, uh, that Jesus went, let me, let me read the rest of this. It said, we are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been in bondage to anyone, and Abraham is our father. 
And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's descendants, you would do the works of Abraham. And they thought he was talking about moral works, righteous works. But he wasn't talking about that. He was talking about the works of believing, the work of faith. And so because they didn't understand that, they, you know, of course, rejected Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews here is trying to show them that, that Abraham didn't live by sight. He didn't live, he didn't, wasn't made righteous by his moral works. He was, wasn't the father of good works. He was the father of good faith. And, and so what, the reason I told you to t- turn to Romans is this. Paul, over and over again, makes this case. I mean, one of his main uh, uh, characters that he uses to prove that salvation is by grace is this guy, Abraham. And so uh, he summarizes what he has to say about Abraham in chapter number four. So, so turn there with me a minute to chapter number four, and let's look at verse number one. He says in verse number one, what then shall we say that Abraham was our father, that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Now here's, here's the kicker right here in verse number three. He says, for what does the scripture say? He says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, this wasn't some doctrine that Paul originated, but that's why he quotes from Scripture. This doctrine was originated by God back in Genesis chapter 15, verse number 6. That's what he's quoting there. And so Abraham believed God. Abraham wasn't justified by his works. He believed God. God said that way back in chapter 15 of Genesis, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then he goes on in verse number 4. He says, now to him who works... The wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. And so he, he would have owed Abraham if Abraham had earned his righteousness by his works. But look what he says in verse number five. He says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. You catch that? Justifies the ungodly. How did God see Abraham before he believed? As ungodly. He didn't see him as a remarkably righteous man. He saw him as an ungodly man. And he says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So basically what Paul is saying there, without faith, Abraham was an ungodly man. And he was justified by his works, not by his works, but by his faith. And so what he's going to do here as we come back to Hebrews in chapter number 11, he's going to show us how Abraham, he's going to show the Jew, and he's going to show us how Abraham was justified by his faith. So turn back and let's go to the, today's text, uh, Hebrews chapter number 11. And let's pick up in verse number 8, Hebrews chapter number 11. And you, you see right away, look at what it says there as we, as we begin this discourse on Abraham. It begins with two words, by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, if you go over to the book of James, James makes that great statement about faith in chapter number 2. He says, faith without works is dead. What What is James saying when he says that? He says, 
what he's saying is this, that real faith produces righteous works. It produces good works. Now, in context, the most righteous work we can do is to obey God. If you obey God, everything else is going to work out. So, so by faith, we obey God. And that's what he's saying Abraham did. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would receive an inheritance. Now, where was he called to go? Where was he called? Where did God call Abraham to go? He was in Chaldea, the Ur of Chaldea in Haran. And God called him and told him to go to Canaan. And What's Canaan? That's the promised land. So Abraham was going to actually, you know, hundreds of years before the Jews crossed the Jordan with Joshua, he's actually going to go to the promised land. And, and he didn't know where he was going. He didn't know what Canaan was. He went out not knowing where he was going, but he obeyed God. Now get the picture here. Here's Abraham. He's 75 years old. He's minding his own business. I mean, he's the all-American pagan, living his life, doing his thing, all-American Haranian or whatever, a Chaldean, he's doing, his, he's doing his thing, he's not bothering anybody, and life's pretty good for old Abraham. One thing's missing. What does Abraham want more than anything else in the world? God? No, he wants a son. And so God comes to Abraham, and he makes a deal with Abraham. He says, Abraham, if you'll obey me, and, and in other words, if you'll let me be your God, or you'll make me your God, I'm going to give you that son you've been wanting for all your life. I'm going to give you and Sarah that son, and I'm not only going to do that, I'm going to make a nation of that son. And from your son, all the nations are going to be blessed. And not only that, I'm going to take you to a place much better than the place you live in now so I can separate you from your people, and I'm going to make a godly nation out of you. That's what I'm going to do if you'll just obey me. Well, you know, it sounded like a pretty good deal. So, so Abraham did exactly that. He obeyed God. He went to a place uh, where he would receive the inheritance, and he went to a place he didn't know where he was going. But it, God did, and so he, he, by faith he obeyed God. Now, look at the next verse, and we're going to jump way ahead here. Okay, Abraham's gone to Canaan. He's had Isaac. Isaac's had Jacob. Abraham died 15 years after Jacob was born, so he lived a while, you know, and, 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 and we're jumping ahead at verse number 9. By faith he dwelt in the land, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now they, and they dwelt in tents too. Now here's the question. Why did they dwell in tents? I mean, Abraham wasn't dwelling in a tent when God called him. And now he's in the land. He's received the promise. He's, he's in the promised land. He's in the land of milk and honey. Uh, he's received his son, and his son's had a son, and the nation's being born, and yet he's still dwelling in a tent. Why is he dwelling in a tent? I mean, Abraham was a wealthy man. He had several hundred servants. He could have built him a nice home. He could have built him a palace. But he's dwelling in a tent. Did he like tents that much? Why did, why did he, why did he uh, live in a tent? Why didn't he settle down? Let me tell you why. Because he had met God. And he had tasted of heavenly things. And no longer did earthly things satisfy him. 
He knew he, you know, he could build the biggest palace in the world, and that wasn't going to satisfy him. He wasn't after those things anymore. You know what he was after? He was after a relationship with God. I mean, that was, he, he had learned that his exceedingly great reward wasn't the things that he was going to get out of God. Abraham became a very wealthy man through his relationship with God. But that wasn't what excited him. What excited him was God himself. And so more than anything else, he wanted to live with God. He had met God and he wanted to live with God. And so he started looking forward to the day that he would live with God. And that changed his whole perspective on life. And instead of squatting in the land, he became a pilgrim at that point. He saw himself as a pilgrim on the earth. His son saw themselves as pilgrims on the earth. And so they dwelt in tents. He was Because he was waiting for something much better better you want to see what it is look look ahead to verse number 10 he says for he waited for the city which has found which has foundations whose builder and maker is god you know what city he's waiting for i think maybe he might have gotten a glimpse of it at some point you know what city he's waiting for same city i'm waiting for it's got a name You know what it is? Read Revelation. I'm not going to do it now, but go back and read Revelation chapter 21. It's called the New Jerusalem. It's going to come down from heaven and sit right above this earth. It's where you and I, who are born-again believers, children of God, that's where children of faith, the children of Abraham, are going to dwell forever. And Abraham somehow, I don't know if it was a physical vision that he had or a spiritual vision that he had or just just God just told him about it or he just had thoughts about it, but... More than anything else, he didn't care anymore about the promised land, Canaan. He cared about the promised land in heaven. He cared about dwelling with God. You know, we were t- somebody, somebody, I was talking to somebody else about some of these books that have come out lately about heaven and, and where you find fallacies in them right away if you start reading them. And one of the fallacies that I find often is these people that go there and say that, uh, that, that when they when you read their books, it's all about these great mansions and the golden streets and all of these wonderful things that you see in heaven. They talk about how big their home's going to be when they get there and all these people are constructing all of these homes. I don't think Abraham was looking for a home up there. I think he'd been fine dwelling in a tent in the New Jerusalem. He's got a home up there, I'm sure. But you know what he was looking for? You know what he was waiting for? He was waiting for God. He had seen God. He had talked to God. He had a relationship with God. And he wanted to live with God. And nothing on this earth was going to satisfy Abraham. For he waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, let let me just talk about that. Let me add something to that. When the Israelites went into the promised land, and Joshua took them into the promised land, they made a big mistake, a real big mistake. For them, the prize became life in the promised land. The prize wasn't God. In other words, they wanted the blessings, and they loved the blessings, but they forgot the blesser. See, I think that's the same mistake a lot of us make. We become squatters instead of pilgrims. We we make the things, the blessings that God wants to give us, the prize, instead of making God the prize. That new home we've looked for and longed for, that 
that job we, we want so bad, that, that husband or that wife, that, that, uh, that child. I mean, Abraham wanted a child more than anything else, and he got the child, but he still lived in tents. See, we get those things, and if we're not careful, and we, in the process of receiving the blessing, forget the blesser, then those things that we're looking for can actually, those things we long for more than anything else can actually become curses in our life. But not Abraham. Abraham got this thing right. So did Sarah. I mean, I love this next verse. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged God as faithful, or him, who, him faithful who had promised. That verse gives me a lot of encouragement. I don't know about you. Because if Sarah can land in the hall of faith, maybe my faith isn't as bad as I think it is sometimes. Because i got to tell you, when I read about Sarah, I wonder sometimes if she had any faith at all. I mean, you remember in chapter 18 of Genesis when, when God appears uh, to warn them about what's going to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah and, and he brings two angels with him and while he's there, he renews the covenant and he tells uh, Abraham that, uh, yeah, you're, you're going to have a child and, and uh, it's coming soon, hang on. And what does Sarah do? She overhears the conversation. What does she do? She laughs. She laughs at God. She always says, sure. We're going to have a kid. Look how, old, I mean, look how old I am. Look how old my husband is. There's no way we're going to have a kid. And she laughed. And then just a couple of chapters later, or a couple of years later, uh, she gets tired of waiting. And so she says, well, you know, Abraham can have a child with Hagar. So he, she talks Abraham into going into Hagar, and, and they have a child named Ishmael. And she figures that's the child. But it wasn't the child, was it? But, but man, she had all sorts of these, these uh, times where she... Her faith uh, wavered, but the good news is that in the end, her faith held up. At the age of 90, she had sexual relationships with a 100-year-old man <laughs> believing that they could still have a child. That takes faith. And they had a, she got pregnant and they had a child. And, and I, what I like about Sarah, she shows us all that, you know, Faith is, there's no such thing as perfect faith. Faith comes with doubts and fears. We all are going to have our doubts and fears. But in the end, real faith is going to endure. Why does real faith endure? Because where do we get real faith? Real faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So if you have real faith, that faith is going to endure. No matter how many times you waver and how many times you falter, that faith is going to endure. Then in verse number 12, it says, Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, <laughs> that's the description of Abraham, dead sexually, were born as many as the stars of the sky in God's eyes. That's the way God sees Abraham's children. He didn't have that many at the time. Uh, of, we looked at it in verse number 9. I mean, he didn't have, or verse number 10, he didn't have that many children. He didn't have that many children when the author of Hebrews was writing this. Look at what it says. It says, therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Now, is that hyperbole? I, I got to wonder about that. I mean, is that an error that God made in the text or the author made in the text? 
You know, astrologers tell us that there are 70 sextillion stars in the universe. 70 sextillion. That's 7 to the 22nd power. You can't count it. It's infinite. It's innumerable. That's how many stars there are. Well, you know, maybe the author was talking about, you, you might look here and, and a lot of expositors would say that he was talking about the stars that he could see with his, with his eyes. But where, where that idea goes wrong is you look at that second metaphor, the innumerable as the sand which is on by the seashore. Now, the University of Hawaii took some of your tax dollars a few years back and they decided to count how many grains of sand there are on the seashore. So they hired students and they took a bowl and they filled a bowl with sand and they counted the number of grains of sand in that bowl. And they came up with about a million grains of sand. And then they took the mass of that bowl of sand and then multiplied it times how many bowls of sand there are. I don't know how they came up with that number. But they multiplied that time the number of bowls of sand there are on the seashore, and they came up with 7.5 quintillion grains of sand on the seashore. That's 7.5 to the 17th power. Again, that is, you can't count it. It's an infinite number. It's innumerable. There's no way you can count it. Now, there have been a lot of Jews born on the earth. I mean, lots of them. Six million of them were killed in the Holocaust. There have been a lot of Jews born on, on the earth. There's been a lot of children of faith born again uh, since the days of Abraham. But by no means have we come close to these kind of numbers. So what does God mean by that? I mean, I believe, I don't believe that's hyperbole. You know what I believe? And this is an opinion here. I believe that God's going to be saving people somewhere in this universe throughout eternity. And who's he going to save? He's going to save the children of faith. He's going to save those who believe and it's accounted to them for righteousness. So, so hey, we're going to see a lot more people saved uh, before this whole thing's over, before eternity finishes. And guess what? I got news for you. Eternity never finishes. Then in verse number 13, he says, these all died in faith. Who's he talking about these? Well, he's talking about the guys, all of these people of faith. Abel, Abel died in faith. Uh, Noah died in faith. Uh, Enoch died. He didn't die. He was taken in faith. Uh, Sarah died in faith. Abraham died in faith. Isaac died in faith. Jacob died in faith. Not having received the promises. Now, see, that's tricky because they all did receive the promise. I mean, Jacob was promised things that he received. Isaac was promised a bride. He got his bride. Abraham was promised a child. He got his child. He was promised a nation. The nation had begun. But they all died not having received that last promise, uh, the promise of another world, the promise of heaven, the promise of the city of God, the promise of a, 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 a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. So they hadn't received that. They all died. But by the fact that they lived in tents, 
These all died, not having received the promises, but having seen from them from afar off. They knew in their hearts that one day they were, that, was it, that it was going to happen. They were insured and they embraced those promises. And instead of squatting in the land, because they knew there was a better world coming, they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. By living in tents, they became witnesses that they really believed in another world. You know, I think we witness to that all the time by how we live this life. If every, we're pouring every bit of our life into the temporal things, we haven't learned the lesson of these great people of faith. We haven't learned that lesson yet. Until we learn that, hey, this is just a short temporal situation and these are nothing more than material things that aren't going to satisfy us. Until we learn that lesson, we're going to really struggle with finding contentment. They found contentment in looking to the future. And they were so content that they didn't care about anything. They just wanted to live out their lives, and, and they did some great things. But they didn't want to squat here on this earth. They, were, they saw themselves as pilgrims. They were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. For those who say such things, verse number 14, declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They seek another world. They seek heaven. And so they hold on to the things of this earth very loosely. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, and I think, again, he's speaking here of Abraham and Sarah. He says, if truly, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had an opportunity to return. You understand what he's saying right there? He's saying that if they had long to go back to his birthplace, back to the land of Chaldea, back to Haran. If they had longed to do that, and, and uh, they, they longed they long for, for, for their relatives, they longed for their home, they longed for their stuff, at some point they might have turned around and gone back. But they never desired to go back. Even when they were in Canaan, they never desired to settle down. They never desired to make it home because they looked for another world. But they could have gone back. You know, I think a lot of us do go back. A lot of us don't look forward. We look behind and we say, whoa, I really had it good back here when I lived in Las Vegas. I'm going to move back to Las Vegas. Or I really had it good when I lived in anywhere but Louisiana, and I'm going, to go, I'm going to move there. I'm going to move there soon. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. See, that's what they desire. That's what we should desire. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And I, again, I think by the they here, now they desire, he's talking about all the people of faith. That includes Abel, and he, who he spoke of earlier, Enoch, and, and Noah, and Abraham, and Sarah. They all, and us, we all desire a better. I mean, there's got to be something better than this. I mean, by faith, we believe there is something better than this. There's a heavenly country. I mean, we all desire another world we all desire to be if we're truly born again to be in the place where god himself dwells i mean just look at noah 
I mean, Noah's a great example. I mean, Noah, I mean, Noah was given a promise. What was the promise that Noah was given? We looked at it last week. We looked in, in, in uh, verse number 7, and then we looked back at Genesis number 6. What was Noah promised? What was he promised? He promised that he'd save life on this earth. He would save himself and his family if he did what? If he obeyed God and he built an ark. Did God come through on that promise? He built the ark, the rains came, and Noah received the promise. He saved two of every kind of animal. He saved all of his family. He saved himself. And he was happy as a lark when that, when that ark landed. You know how happy he was? What was the first thing Noah did once he got off the ark? Do you remember? You remember what he did? He went out and he planted a vineyard so he could make grapes, so he could drink wine, so he could get drunk. And he got so drunk that he laid there naked in his tent and his sons looked upon him, one of his sons looked upon him, I think in a weird way, and he was cursed. Now Noah, was, was, would a happy man do that? A man who was fulfilled by that fulfillment of that promise or content with the fulfillment of that promise, would he, would he go out and, you know, uh, grow a grapevine and, and make wine and get drunk? Would he do that? I mean, I don't think Noah was content. I don't think that was the last time, the last grapevine he grew or the last glass of wine he had. He might have made some hard stuff after that. I mean, he lived another 300 years. And I, I don't think it was, it wasn't the Garden of Eden. Probably was pretty tough. And so, you know, I mean, he got drunk several times. Because why? Because he wasn't satisfied with just receiving the promise on this, what, what was promised concerning this earth. He longed for a heavenly country. He longed for another world. And because of that, Look, if you, when you desire that, when you desire God, when your true desire is God, look at what God says about you. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he, prepared, for he has prepared a city for them. Who's them? The children of faith. Those who believe in him enough to obey him. Those who love him enough to obey them. He's prepared for them a city. He prepared it for Noah. He prepared it for Abel. He prepared it for Enoch. He prepared it for Abraham and Sarah and all of these great people of faith. And he's prepared it for you. Just contrast that last part of that verse to what uh, the Lord said back in Genesis 6 when we looked at that passage last week. Remember, remember when he was looking down upon the earth, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great and every intent of his of the thoughts of his heart were on evil continually so that the Lord was grieved in his heart that he had even put man on earth. He was ashamed of mankind. He was ashamed of his creation. But how has that been reversed? That's been reversed by the people of faith. Those people who come to him by faith. Not for some religion, not to get the goodies, People who make Jesus Christ their exceedingly great reward. You know, you know it sounds very familiar to, to something Jesus said about his disciples. I'm no longer am I ashamed to call you brother or friend. God's not ashamed to call us his children. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's pre 
for he has prepared a city for them. My dad was a colonel in the United States Air Force as I was growing up. And throughout our life, we moved from place to place and city to city. And my dad had a tour in North, in, not North Korea, in Korea, South Korea, and had a tour in Europe. Uh, and every place my parents went, every place they lived, they would buy a home, and then they would sell that home, and they were, in the, they were in the stage where homes were always going up in value, so they were always making money on their home. And they were putting that back into the next home they would buy. So they got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger homes as they, as they went from place to place. And as they went to these various parts of the world, they loved to buy antiques, trinkets, artwork, all sorts of artwork they bought in Europe, all sorts of antiques they bought in Europe. And when they retired, finally retired in Hoover, they built a, or they bought a beautiful home, very large home, very beautiful home, and every room was filled with these antiques and these paintings and just these brass uh, pieces of furniture. I mean, you just have to see it to, to, to see all the nice things they had. But my dad's 93 now, and so a couple of years ago, he, he decided he just couldn't keep up that big house anymore. And, and so... He moved to a retirement home there in Hoover, close by. And uh, so he didn't have to maintain the building or mow the grass or rake the leaves or, and, or cook because they have a cafeteria there. And then there were doctors and stuff there if they need to, they need to see doctors. And so they sold their house, that beautiful house. They got rid of all of those Antiques, sold of the antiques, gave, asked us if we wanted any. Uh, all the family and any of us that wanted them could have got them, but they basically sold most of it. They, they got rid of all, most of their stuff, that they had, the stuff they had accumulated over a lifetime. But, you know, when I talk to my dad, I don't think he's looking back. I don't think he's looking back and saying, I wish I could go back there to where we had that big house and we had all of that stuff and we had all of those antiques and all of that artwork. I wish I, wish I could go back to the place where we, we had those things. I don't think he's pining away over any of the stuff he once had. I think my dad is clearly looking for another world, a city built by God. Now, don't get me wrong, he's not in any hurry to leave and we're not in any hurry for him to leave. And... I think my dad really enjoys his life now. His life is pretty much taking care of my mom who has Alzheimer's. I mean, he, that's pretty much his job. He does that full time. But deep down in my dad's heart, he knows that he's a pilgrim in this world and that his real home is in another world. And so he's living in a, a, a much smaller place, much smaller, and he doesn't, it's not his. It belongs to the retirement home. And it's almost like living in a tent until he, that time comes when God calls him to that other world. Look, there's nothing wrong with enjoying your life here on earth. There's, there's nothing wrong with having stuff. I'm not saying that at all. But what, where we make it wrong is when we hold on to stuff too tightly. When that stuff becomes our heart's desire, 
if we're really born again, if we're truly born again, if we're children of faith, by faith we desire a heavenly country, a country in another world. That's what we long for. If you're longing for something else, then things are out of focus. I'm not saying you're not saved, but you've got things out of balance. And it really changes your life when you take the step that Abraham and these people of faith took. And by faith, they looked forward to another world. And they lived in this world, waiting on that other world. It changes everything. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you for these great examples of faith that we have here in the Bible, Lord. We, we live in a world full of material things, Lord, and, and, and they're easily accessible to us all, to most of us. So, Lord, it's just so easy for us to make those things the most important things in our life and lose the blesser while we're seeking the blessing. Lord, just help us to keep our focus on you. Help us to see with our spiritual eyes this other world you have for us. So much greater, Lord. A world where it's not about things, but it's about you. About your glory and your presence. Lord, help us to begin to see that other world in the world in which we live here and now on this earth. We can only do that by the power of your spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.